Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. This is talk number three on the Heart Sutra. And um, uh, I'd like to just start kind of continuing with what we were talking about this morning, or what I was talking about this morning when we finished sitting practice. Oh, even before that. Practice is so lovely right now. Everybody's just really, really focused. Uh, The asana practice today, the questions were so good. I can tell from the questions that you're really deep in it. So it's, it's a wonderful group. Um, usually the, the group that shows up for an intensive like this is much more diverse in their asana background. Um, and this group is not so diverse in their asana background, which is lovely. <laughs> um, so we really can, can, can move forward every day in a cumulative way. Um, and I can tell that not just by your practices, but by the questions. Also. I'm sorry you have an injury, Mike, and I, I hope that it heals so you can be back on your yoga mat with others. Um, so what I was saying in the sitting meditation is, you know, it's so easy to sit on your cushion and waste time. And um, you're here for 12 days. It's not a long time. So when we chant, we say, life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly. Really swiftly. Uh, don't squander your life. Which we would say, don't squander your time. Don't squander your time. So we're there, we're just sitting, those periods in the morning show up. And, and really try and undo that knot that keeps you... Um, just in the momentum of uh, narrative. You know? um, it's really important. It's really important. It's important for you, uh, but it's important for the people around you, too. We all know this about the, the people who are around us. Is um, We love them, and it's really hard to love them when they're caught up. <laughs> in their stories and their habits and their ways of seeing where they can't see. And they can't see it. And we can see it. So we say, you should do some sitting practice. (laughs) Uh, But it's happening for us also, all the time. Happens for me all the time. Um, And when you sit, we're not sitting for an end result. We're just sitting to follow the breath and follow the breath until the breath gets quiet, nervous system starts to calm, you can feel your heart rate calming, the body gets settled. And then what starts to arrive is just a feeling for the process of sitting. Just a feeling for sitting in the middle of your life. And sitting is an expression of an appreciation for being alive. It's like uh, somebody uh, reminded you that you woke up this morning. Oh, I woke up another morning. I woke up another morning. So I'm going to sit to practice this way of appreciating the fact that I got to wake up this morning. Some people don't wake up in the morning. My friend Steve is a carpenter. 
he's my closest friend, which is why he's not allowed to come here. And um, uh, he, he's, all, he's a great carpenter, and so he's helping me out at my house right now. And, and just this week, his best friend died. Um, he lives in Guelph. He wasn't feeling great at work, uh, so he just went home and went to bed and didn't wake up. I think he was not even 50. Um, so a little older than me, same age as Steve. And so it happens all the time. You, just, you lie down, that's it. But you woke up this morning. And we practiced Shavasana this morning, and you woke up. <laughs> so you lie there in Shavasana, and you just drop away body and mind. And then... Um, the bell rings, or you hear my voice, and then you get back up again, and with a little more appreciation, because a little less clinging. A little less clinging. Um, and then you, you start fresh. You start at the beginning. That's the nice thing about the Heart Sutra, is even if you just go line by line, whatever line you jump in is a beginning also. And the yoga postures are like this. Wherever you jump in, it's the beginning. You, you enter into downward dog, and that movement back into downward dog from upward facing dog, the, the whole seed of the future of downward dog is in that movement back into downward dog from upward dog. That's why I always say, you know, the way you live is going to be the way you die. Because the seed for how you die is going to be in how you live. Which is right here. So, um, the Heart Sutra is kind of a magical teaching, I think. It's not a philosophical teaching. And I think if you're, if you're reading the text literally, you can see that this is the anti-philosophy text. This is the text trying to cut away philosophy. And these two characters, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, so this is the Bodhisattva who listens to the cries of the world, is having a dialogue with Shariputra, who is the master of Buddhist psychology and philosophy and the nitty-gritty details of what it's possible to know. But Avalokiteshvara and Shariputra are also in you. They're both characters in you. You have in you the capacity for uh, deep and creative responsiveness which is compassion. And you also have the person in you who can look at a situation and you're so smart and you can just analyze it. You can look at somebody and you can analyze their problems. You can analyze their background. You can analyze their actions. Forever. And sometimes... Uh, psychological acuity is toxic for relationships. Because you look at the other and you just, you know exactly what they're doing and why they do it and which parent they got it from. <laughs> you know. But if you can't accept them in a really deep way, then your psychological uh, analysis is actually going to shut down your possibility of relationship. So in this uh, in this text, Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, and Shariputra, they're equals. We, everybody reads it like the Buddha said that compassion is much more you know um, majestic and important than Shariputra is just this kind of scholar practitioner. But that's not true. Uh, they're both equal, and they both live inside of us. Um, we have in us this capacity to really accept others. And you can't accept others unless you really can accept yourself. Sounds like a cliche, huh? <laughs> Sounds a little corny. But actually, uh, when you sit on your meditation cushion, all you're running away is not accepting yourself. Because what's yourself? It includes a lot more than just what you think it is. Yourself is everything that moves through you in sitting. It's the five skandhas. It's everything. The five skandhas are everything. Everything. 
subjectively experienced. So when you sit down, you're sitting in the middle of the universe. Sometimes when I tell people how to arrange their cushions, I always say, like, arrange it really carefully because you're going to sit down right in the center of the universe. So get your cushion right. And it's not that you are the center of the universe. Dave, you already let go of that one. <laughs> Is that what you said on the first day? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's that, you know, when you sit there, the universe is moving through you. And to be able to accept that is to accept yourself. And then if there's places that you have a hard time allowing in, it's going to be very, very hard to accept that in other people. It's like this when we're very wounded, you know. When you're wounded and you see the exact same kind of wound in another person, they're annoying. <laughs> Aren't they? And when you have a wound that you've really worked with, that you're not running away from, and that you're really open to, then when you see that wound in another person, there's compassion. You don't judge them. Because you know how hard it is. And we all have, you know, uh, moods and wounds and scars that you're not going to heal. I mean, all of us, we're very idealistic, right? Oh, 12 days, I can heal the whole thing. <laughs> so, but really, I mean, there are going to be certain tendencies that you're not going to heal. Uh, I read last night on the Internet, uh, someone sent me this article. I forgot what it's called. But anyway, it's one of these New York, uh, New, York New York Times science reporters saying that... Um, um, Temperament is 99% genetic. But your temperament is 99% genetic. And I thought, this is a great reason to practice. We're all idealistic. We think, oh, we're changing all the time and so on. But actually, you know, we have groups that are, they're just so deep. And, and the thing that triggers them are siblings, <laughs> step-siblings, Parents. Parents. I mean, others. Right? Others. So that's why I say the Heart Sutra is more a magical teaching. Because it's teaching us how to course in deep Prajnaparamita. Not to fall on the uh, saintly side, which is, oh, I just love everyone. And, you know, and not to fall on the analysis side which is uh, like picking points with people, you know, picking apart things they do. Or, I don't know, does anyone ever get, I get like this, where you get in an argument with someone who's close to you, and then you start listing off all the times they've done the same thing, <laughs> and they can't believe that you've remembered. <laughs> like, oh, do you remember in March when you, and you did the same thing last June when you were visiting your parents, and then remember in the summertime that day we were, Right? And then, and they're like, what are you keeping an inventory? And you don't want to admit it, but you're keeping an inventory. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in the Heart Sutra, what we've covered so far is that, uh, what we're being encouraged to do is live Prajnaparamita course deeply in Prajnaparamita, and that that is the uh, expression of emptiness. And emptiness is empty of swabhava, empty of own being. That everything is empty of own being. What's it empty of? It's empty of own being, which is a fullness. Things are so full that they're empty of an own being. But it's not just glass jars and tables and chairs that are empty of own being. It's you and me. You are empty of own being. So psychologically, you have a self. Psychologically, we have this self. We feel it. Uh, your nose is different than my nose. There's a, a kind of sense that, you know, 
uh, I know who I am. Mm-hmm. And that's really healthy. But ontologically, at some deeper fundamental level, you just don't exist except for this kind of psychological construct of ourselves. And the response of realization, of the realization of that, is a more tenderness. Tenderness to ourselves. You're not so... Uh, you're not such a problem. You think you're such a problem. A nuisance. You think you have so many problems. But there's no you having those problems. And then maybe when you see that, it's a little easier to have problems. Because they're not happening to you. They're just problems. And they're also a product of your times. I get like this sometimes around being a father. Because I I love being a dad. And, And it's so hard to be a dad. Uh, but the thing that I find the hardest is not being a dad, is a nuclear family. Anybody in one of these things? Nuclear family. So what that means is like two people live together, have work that they do. They have to be really good at it nowadays. They have uh, a relationship, which you're supposed to be really good at too. Um, and they're supposed to do all these things, like have sex, make money, have a successful career, clean the house, vacuum, (laughs) pick up the kids, right? And then have a social life, have friends, keep the garden watered. And then, like, if you keep going around, contribute to the community, get involved in local politics, know the issues of the community, know global issues, make sure you're, you know, you have... uh, um, uh, a whole lifestyle that doesn't have too big of an impact on our ecological existence. Like, how do you do this? How do you do this? And so all of us uh, suffer from an anxiety when we try and live this model of having a family. I do. Uh, but, but that's a suffering that's from our times. You see? So that's why the teaching of emptiness is so important. Because it lets us see that, oh, some of these struggles that I have, like, that's not my fault. <laughs> you know? That, and that's not your fault. You know? And that's not your fault. And that's not your fault. It's partly just now. You have a responsibility. And you have to take care of it. And work with it. But um, it's from, it's a product of our culture. You see? And the, these, these harebrained ideas we have about how you're supposed to live. It occurred to me last night, you know, I went for a walk. The neighborhood I live in is um, in the west end of the city. And according to the Globe and Mail last year, it has the highest birth rate in the country for its postal code. That postal code has the highest birth rate in the country. You move into that neighborhood and you just start making babies. (laughs) I don't know what it is. I don't even know how it happened. I just got a new postal code, and next thing I know, <laughs> Karina's pregnant. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah. And, and I had the thought, it must be so hard for people who can't have a baby um, to be in that neighborhood. And to, it must be really hard if you can't have a kid, and you're really wanting to have a kid. To walk around in that neighborhood must be really painful. Or what about people who lose a kid? Imagine losing a kid and then walking through that playground, walking up and down the street with so many kids everywhere. Or um, maybe you know, you're know you a single person renting a, a small apartment in that neighborhood. And you walk around and it's like, everybody has a partner. Everybody has a baby. So there's going to be some discomfort from that. I mean, there can also be self-righteousness. Like, I'm so independent, I'm going against the grain. But, if, you know, if the heart's soft, there's both. There's both. Um, so what the Heart Sutra allows us to do is course in deep Prajnaparamita. 
is the wisdom of seeing there's both. There's, oh, I don't have this life. Or I have this life, and it's really hard. And both are possible. So this is the teaching of the Heart Sutra. So it's quite magical, I think, because it's not giving you an ideology. Like, this is the way, this is what a spiritual practice should look like. It's not saying saying your job is actually to engage the circumstances of your life, not running away and not clinging at the same time. And I don't know if you've noticed, but life is imperfect. Has anybody figured this out yet? Or are you still trying to get the perfect schedule? So... The Chinese word for emptiness, which is something else we covered, is ku, which means the sky. So I think it's helpful when you're reading this to yourself, instead of saying the word emptiness, say the word sky. Everything is really sky. All dharmas, all particles are really sky. My problems today, they're just sky. It's not writing them off. They exist, and they're also made up of sky. There's sky. It's just like vast, vastly. It's not saying, my problems are vast. <laughs> they're, they're like the sky. But they're sitting in the spaciousness of the sky, the space around the stars. Um, then uh, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva says to Shariputra, Form is no other than emptiness. So form is sky. And emptiness is no other than form. Form is exactly emptiness, and emptiness is exactly form. And more philosophy has been spilled about these four lines than any other sentences in the history of Buddhism. Uh, But if we skip the philosophy and we just look at it in terms of our practice, that form is doesn't have own being. Right? Doesn't have its own substantiality. It's full of everything. And everything is not separate from form. You can't have emptiness without form. You can't have form without emptiness. They depend on each other. So this is kind of a Buddhist logic that you need to get used to, which is that uh, opposites are contained in each other. Like, are men and women opposites? Well, sometimes. Sometimes it feels like they're opposites. And also, (coughs) on closer analysis, they're not. And then you look a little deeper... And they are. And then you look a little deeper, and they're not. It's like comparing two trees. You look at two trees, they're both trees. They're the same. And then you look a little deeper at the leaf structure, and they're totally different. Maybe one is male and one's female. And then you look a little deeper, and they both are wood. And So it, it just depends on the layer you're looking at. So the Buddhist logic, and it's not Buddhist logic, it's a helpful way of looking at your own life, is that when you start thinking in binary opposites, if you go a little deeper, there's commonality. Go a little deeper, opposites. And this is why I can't stand this whole business about non-dualism. The non, people who are non-dual drive me kind of nuts. Because non-dualism is like the most dualistic that you can be because it's always looking for oneness of everything and nobody can live like that because there is dualism so at center of gravity I encourage neo non-dualism which is non-dualism that really loves dualism so really being able to see the oneness of things because you love the distinctions between things and to me, this is healthy non-dualism, is really to be able to be fully in the oneness of things and appreciate difference. And appreciate difference. Then we hear 
Form is exactly emptiness, emptiness exactly form. Sensation, conception, discrimination are likewise like this. So do you remember what those are? They're the rest of the five skandhas, right? So form, sensation, conception, discrimination are likewise like this. O Shariputra, all dharmas. Okay, this is so radical. So remember this? Here, Shariputra, all dharmas. So the word dharma means a particle or the law. And basically what it means is the smallest thing that you can observe, the smallest stuff that's observable, okay? And in traditional Buddhist philosophy, so this is, called, this is in the Theravada Buddhist world, uh, it said that there were 75 dharmas. They actually named all of them. And we're not going to get into them. But the difference between the... In the naming of the Dharma, they distinguish that there are three of the 75 Dharmas are uh, not conditioned. Okay? So you have all these Dharmas, so it's like, it's like you have all these particles, right? You name them. This is Abhidharma psychology. Um, and um, the, the first dharma that is unconditioned or unsupported, which is kind of obvious, is space. So if you look in the space of this room, when you walk into this room, the first thing you look at is the form. right? But also, in, held by the form, is space. Right? And all those particles of space, akash, and the word akash in Sanskrit that we translate as space, means unobstructed. Right? So this room has space. How do you know it has space? Because it's an unobstructed walk from that door to that door. Okay? Um, so space is an unconditioned dharma. The second unconditioned dharma is nirvana. It's called nirvana with remainder. It means there's nirvana, but there's a little left. So an example of that is when the Buddha was enlightened. The Buddha was enlightened, supposedly, the story goes, under a tree looking up at Venus in the early morning. And then continued to work in the world. So that's called nirvana with remainder. So there's nirvana, but not fully, because he was still around. And if you're still around, you've got problems. And the Buddha was constantly having problems. The Buddha had an ulcer, and he had an ulcer his whole life, and it caused him a lot of pain, and he suffered a lot. So he was enlightened, but he also had this ulcer that caused him a lot of trouble. Then he had his closest students sometimes leave him. So that's enough to give somebody an ulcer, or if you have an ulcer, to make it worse. So some of you are teachers, and you know what it's like, right? You teach and you really put energy into someone's life. And then one day they say, I'm opening a studio across the road. <laughs> and that's the last you'll talk to them for a decade, I'm sure. Right? Um, and then the Buddha also had this problem of having thousands of students. So imagine 3,000 students coming over the hill into a town begging with bare feet, like that's a political economic problem. So the Buddha was constantly having to deal with mayors and kings and supporters to deal with uh, this community that was growing. So the Buddha suffered a, a lot. So this is nirvana. He was awake, but with remainder. And then when the Buddha died, his life force went into a sphere of pure peace. And, he was, and, and that energy was not reborn again. There was no coming back. Whatever that energy is, it was in a place of pure peace, and then the Buddha doesn't come back again. And um, that's the third of the unconditioned dharmas, and that's the dharma of nirvana without remainder. Just pure freedom. No vacuuming. No siblings. <laughs> no chores. So now, 
Mahayana Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism comes along. Buddhism starts changing. And in that change, this idea of the Bodhisattva emerges. Somebody who's so interconnected with life that they're motivated to serve. And they make their life a path of service. And here we have Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, who's announcing the front, this new paradigm of Buddhism, saying, you know all those dharmas? No. They don't exist. They're empty. Just one swoop. Just this deity of compassion, just saying about all these dharmas, conditioned, unconditioned, nirvana, remainder. No. <laughs> And probably because there's two problems with dharmas. The, the first dharma, the first problem, is the swabhava problem. Is when you have a dharma, suddenly you have something that has own being. And then you can cling to it. So how many, have you ever been in a phase of your life where you've heard a story of somebody becoming fully enlightened and reaching some sphere of pure peace, and then you want that? Yeah? So you can cling now to an idea of the dharmas. Uh, the second problem um, is that if you look at your life just in terms of the dharmas, you get self-centered, self-focused. Because you think these things are in you and they exist. And then if something exists in me, there has to be a me that's relating to it. This is a whole problem if you have a soul. Some of you might have a soul. But if you have a soul, then there has to be a you who has a soul. This is a big problem. Or if you uh, have a relationship with God, then there has to be a you that's having a relationship with God. So whenever you set up this kind of vocabulary, you're, you're creating swabhava, own being. And Avalokiteshvara is saying, no way. There's no own being. Uh, he's saying the world is full of love and the most important thing is just to love others. Here. That's it. Well, saying no dharmas, it sounds kind of dry. Oh, there's no dharmas. But what it really means is everything is love. And because of that, everything that you do makes a difference. And also, we need to love all the mundane stuff because it's the stuff of your life, even vacuum. So um, there's a wonderful koan like this where Jaju, um, a, monk, a monk tells Jaju, I have just entered the monastery. And Jaju says, have you eaten breakfast? And the monk says, yes. And Jaju says, go wash your bowls. This is a famous, famous koan. Go wash your bowls. So this monk comes into the monastery to get enlightened. And then the teacher says, have you had breakfast? The monk says, yes. Did you wash your bowls? So when Romana comes and takes care of the altar, she has to keep the flowers really moist. And uh, when you put away your uh, mats, you take really good care of them. When I was in Japan in April, uh, after we would do our sitting practice in the morning, this huge bell rings. And it's still very, very early. The sun's coming up. And then uh, I got handed a, a wood bucket and the job was to get down on my hands and knees. And in the uh, nighttime, the birds come to the moss gardens. Very old moss. This moss garden was 300 years old. And the birds come and they pick up the moss so they can get the worms or little insects under there. And then so my job was to go around and find the moss that matched the hole <laughs> and then put it back. You know. So... 
So I, I sometimes I imagine it was like they were like toupees <laughs> of the earth, you know. And the the earth was embarrassed because it was missing its toupee. So I had to go find the toupee and put it back and make it all nice again. And then one day the teacher said, uh, uh, "Do you understand the Bodhisattva vow?" The first line of the voice said, I vow to serve all sentient beings. So we talked about this for a little bit. And then he explained, uh, the, 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 the truth of this practice is just to take care of things. Take care of things. So this is what the Heart Sutra said. Just to take care of things. Now, behind the teacher was this massive old cherry blossom tree. And it was the second week of April, and there were, it was full of cherry blossoms. And the cherry blossom tree has these old branches. And then under the branch, they would build like a crutch out of bamboo to hold the branch up. And then the branch would keep growing. So then they would put another crutch. So there's this like several century old uh, cherry tree all held up with canes, still flowering. And that's how the Japanese take care of elderly people. That's how they take care of each other. In the bathhouse, every day at 4 o'clock we would bathe, and you go into the bathhouse, and uh, the, there, so the, there's a wall, and the shower head comes out of the wall very low. So you squat, you know, and then the water comes over you, and then you take your soap and you rub it on a cloth that's a rectangle, and then you you clean yourself. So then I'm done, you know, and I look over, and the guys next to me are like still working on their knee, <laughs> and they'll they'll just really take so much care to clean. And I'm thinking, you cleaned yesterday, like you cleaned this so well yesterday, you know? but they're not cleaning their body. They're taking care of themselves. And it's not the same thing. So my favorite part of the day was the bathhouse. Because everybody would get in there and they would take such good care of themselves. Because when you wash your body, you can just kind of like wash it to get it clean. Or you can wash it in a way where you're really taking care of yourself. And this is how we're practicing asana, I hope. This is how we're working with our mind when we're sitting. Is we're not sitting to get somewhere. We're not practicing downward-facing dog to master it. We're practicing it because we're appreciating our life. And it takes so many years of practice to get that feeling. Where you're doing it because it's a joy to appreciate what you've got. But then the ego always comes in tries to figure out how you can use it to get somewhere. So, wash your bowls. Uh, it reminds me a little of yesterday with your that I was trying so hard to follow when I was folding. And then Mina very kindly would come and show me, but in the process of showing me, she would undo and then make the line perfect. Yeah. That was kind of off. And then I would proceed again, and I'd get lost a second time, right? Yeah. And so it wasn't just a matter of making, like, the final bird. It was the beak need, yeah. the beak was folded again. So just like that time to just make sure, just even the yeah. hand movement to make it. Right? It's beautiful and, to see. Yeah, that's beautiful. Did you notice with the paper crane how also, like, just moving it the tiniest bit changes the whole expression yes. of the bird? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like my beak wasn't folded in that twice thing because I thought, well, my fingers are too big, I can't fold it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do it again. Yeah. And it didn't have, yeah, it had an expression because yeah. yeah. of that one extra fold. Yeah. We were so happy when we pulled the wing. How do you sort of think of like just the laws of nature? This whole thing is going on outside. I mean, you kind of think about ourselves and meditate. Yeah. But there's a whole world that's going on. I don't yeah. need to trust. Yeah. The laws of nature, and not just what's going on on this planet, but yeah. what's going on all over. How does that? How do they? How did the Buddha or this philosophy take that into account? Where does it fit? 
Well, I mean, you could say the five skandhas are the laws of nature. You could say that the the only part of the world you can ever really know is this. Because it's the largest part of the world that you have direct experience of. So you can't actually experience the world independent of this. So we experience the laws of nature through us. Maybe there are laws of nature. The laws of nature is a human construct. Well, it also changes over time. No, but nature seems to always be taking care of itself. Sure, but why are we thinking that there is this thing that's nature that has its own being? Exactly. So this is what the Heart Sutra is grappling with, too. Oh, so I'm separate and nature's over there with its own laws? Yeah. So you could go further with that. How, how do I experience the natural world? Oh, don't answer it. Just take it. Just take the question and just spend some time with it. Like, how, how am I experiencing the natural world? How am I experiencing the natural world? And maybe it might push you a little bit to also ask, what am I calling the natural world? What am I calling the natural world? Where does it begin and end? Does it include pharmaceuticals? Hydrocarbons? Cars? Acids? Batteries? So, that's an important thing to explore. Can we keep going a little bit more? Yeah? Um, Form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness is no other than form. So just just to wrap up that part. So um, so so emptiness. So so the way form and emptiness are usually talked about is like a wave in water. Okay. So a wave is not exactly the ocean because it has its own characteristics. Right, And then at the same time, the wave is not separate from the ocean. Shinru Suzuki says, waves are the practice of water. So form, the wave, depends on the ocean, emptiness, for its existence. And the wave is an expression of emptiness. Just like you are all individual lives, and also we are a part of a much greater life. That's why I always say in walking meditation, and I say this in chanting too, don't just think about yourself. When you practice walking meditation, people get like so into analyzing themselves. So you want to feel your feet and your actual posture and the way the body can walk. Without you, your body can walk. And simultaneously, you want to feel the whole room walking. And maybe you have moments of this. And when you chant, it's the same way. Sometimes we chant and we're so concerned about our own pronunciation that it becomes very self-centered. But when you chant, your voice is a wave in the ocean of all the voices of the Sangha. Right? So don't just think about yourself. You may have lots of problems with your siblings, right? But they're all they've got a lot of problems with you too. You know? And so we have to also take that into account. And then those problems you guys have with each other, your parents feel that. And they may be skilled at working with that, and they may not be skilled at working with that. So it's like a kerfuffle for everybody. It's not just your problem. Every, it's everyone's problem. And then you can just like have a relief. Like, oh, okay, we've all got a problem here. All of us have a problem. And then if someone says, well, no, no, I don't have a problem. It's just your problem. Then you know they've really got a problem. <laughs> and then you can relax even more because you see they've really got a problem. Just like this glass, right? So this glass, when there's water in it, is full of water, right? 
And we say the glass is full of water. And then, open the top. Drink the water. And then we say the glass is empty. Right? But actually, the glass was never full of water or empty of water. The glass is always empty. Water comes in and takes the shape of the glass. Just like when water falls from the sky, we call it rain. When water is in a river, we call it river. Right? When water is in a cup, we call it a drink. Right? So those are all the waves of emptiness. So form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness is no other than form. Don't split those things up. Don't take emptiness and make it a god. And don't take form and make it something that you have to grasp in order to be satisfied. If there's a beautiful dress that you really want, it's going to satisfy somebody. Someone's going to be satisfied. I used to be friends with this woman named Wendy Doniger, who's a, a great scholar. I haven't been in touch with her for years. And... Um, I hung out with her for a little while once in, in Cape Cod, and her best friend was Annie Dillard. And so they used to get drunk together, uh, and then I would come over. <laughs> and, um, and then uh, and Annie Dillard, she's famous as, a, as an incredible American writer, but also she's a theologian, really interesting woman. And anyways, one time we were walking, and then Wendy was talking about how she had breast cancer. And so we sat down on the beach. And just as she was talking about it, a woman came right in front of us and sat down on the beach and out of her towel pulled a little infant out and started breastfeeding. And then Wendy said, Oh, I will never, I'll never do that again. I mean, I think, you know, she was post-menopause at the time anyways. But I think it kind of like hit her. You know when that can happen? Like She was like, Oh, I'm never going to do that again. And then, at the same time, there was this sense of, but someone else is going to do that. It's like, oh, I'm not going to breastfeed. And then also, suddenly, this realization, like, oh, another woman is going to... Why do I feel like I have to be the one who does that? You see, like, something beautiful in a window. I'm giving the example of a dress. But why are we so tight around that I have to be the one who wears that dress? But also somebody else will wear that dress and look so beautiful. Or maybe you secretly hope they'll look really terrible. (laughs) It was meant for you. (laughs) But maybe we can be this with our stuff, this way with our stuff a little bit. You know? Like there's a beautiful car. Or there's a beautiful house. And somebody else will live there. And someone else will drive that car. And isn't it great that someone else gets to, to do that? But no, we're so much like, I have to be the one who does it's To be happy also for others. So that's the, the Bodhisattva path. And um, it's basically saying that the true life is just much, much more... Uh, beneficial and enjoyable than just one part of life. Bigger, much bigger life. Uh. So the last thing I'll say is just that um, if you're reading between the lines here, um, Avalokiteshvara is kind of saying that suffering really just comes from wanting too much. Just being too much for ourselves. Wanting too much. And um, Shariputra is being told that actually all of this teaching that he's learned is helpful and it's too much. It's too much. It's, you're imputing too much svabhava, too much own being. It's not really how things are. So this is like Patanjali's sword or Manjushri's sword. 
that comes and just cuts away. Like, no, you don't need that. You think you need that, but you don't. It's a lot of courage to do that for ourselves. And sometimes we don't have the courage, so other people have to come around. And they have to cut off the things that are too much. So in emptiness, there's no form, no sensation, conception, discrimination, awareness. No eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no color, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no phenomena, no realm of sight, consciousness, ignorance, no end to ignorance, no old age and death, no end to old age and death. That's one paragraph. And it's basically saying those sense organs and sense objects, remember that? So a sense organ has to meet a sense object to have sense consciousness? No. Where do you think your ear is? Where is your eye? Where does seeing happen? You think seeing just happens in your eye? No. Ludicrous. So this is the teaching of no, 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 no. No separate self. So, any comments or questions? before we wrap up this part. I'd like to hear from you maybe for five minutes, and then we'll, we'll take a break. What's, just give a, t- a watch. I've got the watch. Timekeeper? And my watch is like a little slow, I think. Oh. But if we're all on the same time, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Great. Thank you. So what, what's happening for you? We're going to do some exercises around this after the break. Any questions or comments? Are there te- technical issues? Yes? I had a question. It, it relates back to practice, but also to, to this. Um, because you gave us an instruction about kind of letting go of language and looking for self-acceptance underneath that. Mm. And that just blew my head smithereens. Because it's like, how do, you, how do you have emotion or acceptance without language? Yeah. Go check it out. <laughs> I, I, I got lots of, I can play with that for a while. But yeah, you can. Long time. The, 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 the way I got onto that line of thinking was because in the wintertime we did the New Year's retreat and the theme of the New Year's retreat was forgiveness. And when I was preparing for the New Year's retreat, I had this realization that we always say, forgive yourself, forgive yourself. Or we say to others, I, I'm going to try and forgive somebody. But in Judaism and in Christianity, forgiveness comes from God. You don't forgive others. God forgives. You don't forgive yourself. God forgives you. God forgives you. You've done something stupid. God forgives you. So I was thinking, well, that's the same in meditation practice. Because in meditation practice... When, when you can really drop into the place that's underneath thinking, that's underneath like clinging and grasping all the time, you touch this place where you accept what's there. And to me, that's forgiveness. That's actually the deepest forgiveness, is when you can be in that place where you're just allowing what's there to be there, and you're not running away, and you're not beating yourself up, and you're not beating someone else up, and you're not projecting your problems onto your siblings, and you're not projecting your hopes onto, you know, a new house, or a kid, or a car, or anything. Or your frustrations onto the vacuum cleaner, which I did last night. And then you, you drop into that place, and then you take care of things from that place. So that's what I was saying. In the meditation practice, like, 
When you start to just relax into just being with what's there, staying with your breathing, underneath that part that's figuring it out and talking to yourself about it, then to me that's real acceptance. What part, what part is confusing? I, I think for me, when I try to go to that place, uh-huh. and again, I'm making it a place, Yeah. but what's there isn't necessarily acceptable. And I guess there's this emotional level. Okay, so there's an emotional level. And I'm saying, be in the emotional level. Okay. Be in the feeling level. Be in the sensation, sensation level. It's not that, okay, so I hear what you're doing. You're saying, when you get under, 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 then there's this place of acceptance. And what I'm saying is, the, the feeling for just staying in that, and dropping and dropping and dropping, that's the process of acceptance. Right? That's the, the process of love, appreciation. Process, well, you, because you're making swababa. Yeah. You're making a real thing there. Oh, well, I'm going to hit the place of forgiveness. <laughs> Suddenly all the enemies fall away. No way. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's nowhere to get to, Elaine. I know. Do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> Conceptually, <laughs> So the concept's really important, because these, uh, these theories, this is all just talking, but it, ch- it changes how we view our practice. And you can see many people who have very good practice, but it's quite misguided, because they don't have the first of the path, which is right view, appropriate view. So the theory kind of helps us continually relook at our practice, so our practice stays alive. And the practice helps us also drop away dead theory, dead skin, like exfoliation. Did you have a thing about that? Um, I think I'm struggling with seeing how this connects to asana, what mm-hmm. we do in that practice. Um, like it sounds like this is saying the form isn't important. What really is important is compassion. That's the... the <laughs> um, but then... Sometimes it feels like in asana, not just with you, but just in general, we get really wrapped up in this is the right place to put your hand. This is the right way to look. You want to get here eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like if I left my own devices, I would probably just not care about anatomy or alignment. I'd just be like, this feels okay. This feels safe. I'm going to stay in this. Yeah. Or this feels challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you balance those two? Or do you yeah. balance them? What are your thoughts on Oh, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness. So we're talking about form and formlessness. So the way I'm hoping you're feeling the asana practice is that it's making you feel alive and interested. Really interested. Oh, this is really interesting. Really curious and interesting. Um, and this starts to wake up us, wake us up on a physiological level, uh, intellectually, psychologically. We become really, I mean, the only way to heal is to be really interested. And, um, and then this starts spreading. So in the asana practice, yes, you want to make sure in halasana that your sits bones are really tall and the groins are deep and the lumbar spine is an extension so that it's um, supported, so that you can feel the central axis of the pose, then you can release the tongue, the eyes get really soft, and then the kind of meditative absorption shows up quite easily. Mm -hmm. And in the asana, because we're so focused on the breathing rhythm, that, and this is what, you know, every classical textbook says about asana, and the only thing they say about it, is to start to see that prana, the breathing patterns, and chitta, your attention span, are the same thing. And you hear me say this over and over again. 
So that instead of just watching the breath, watching the body, watching the alignment, we start to feel that as the alignment's changing, the breath is just absorbing all these sensations and all these thoughts and is able to hold them without grabbing them and without pushing them away. And that's a really practical thing to learn for your life, is uh, uh, being at home and, uh, uh, you know... Yeah, being really frustrated with the vacuum and then recognizing what's going on, prajnaparamita. And then being able to be with it. And then knowing how to creatively respond. Now's not the time to vacuum. If I vacuum now, I'm not going to do a good job. Or I really need to take this hour and just vacuum and I'm going to do the vacuuming like I do headstand. And really take interest in the vacuum. Look at this dust ball. <laughs> this is not a dust ball. This is just a corner of the universe showing up as a dust ball in this house that I'm so lucky to live in. Mm-hmm. Appreciation. So, uh, to my mind, there's no difference between that and asana and vacuum. <laughs> Even though I'd rather. Asana is a kind of vacuuming, right? You see all these gruntis and all these habits, like... And then you realize, but there's no bag to put them in, because it's empty. So then you have to just be able to have all of these habits and sanskaras present and know how to hold them. Know how to hold them without doing this, without doing this. And that's what we're learning in the asana practice. Foot starting to go behind the head, but you're only over here. And release the tongue, soften the gaze, find the central axis. And then you've got a whole deep practice there. So that's what we're learning. Internal form. So, and I agree that most of the time we're learning just external geometry. That's why we need the internal form. And I'm also of the opinion that if you really get the internal form, the external geometry actually just starts showing up intuitively. But not the other way around. But I'm sympathetic to the external geometry. And that's why there's some people who are like, it's just the internal form. It's just, you know. And because when I first started practicing, or first started teaching, it was, uh, I was doing a lot of teaching with Esther Myers when she died. Who was my cousin? Uh, that's where I met Elaine. And and you know, some of the people who were around her were like, you know, Esther wasn't like this so much. I don't know if you would agree or disagree. Yes, I agree. Yeah, she was not like this so much. But the people who were around her, and it was all women, you know, no men, so they didn't like me very much. Um, and they were all students of Vonda Scaravelli. And Vonda Scaravelli who didn't like me either. <laughs> um, I went to go study with Vonda Scarabelli, and she said, I'm too old to take on somebody like you. And I thought, there's no men here. I just, one man, can just one man practice with me? Anyways, don't write this down. <laughs> so, um, so Vonda Scarabelli had this practice where she was super flexible in her joints. And so she would just like no, like very little strength. And so she would just like hang in things and then just like stand up and then just go into a back then. And, uh, as she got older, like towards the end of her life, she couldn't do any of that stuff anymore because everything hurts so much. And now you see this in people who practice in that way, right? They just hang in their joints, hang in their joints. And the idea is, oh, it's just so soft. That's how you enter into the poses. It's just all the internal stuff going on. Your eyes are closed. I think that's great. But also, you need the other side of it. You need to bring in the other side of it. Or you go too far on the other side. Like, I'm so strong, I'm just going to push through all these poses. Right? And then, like, you don't feel anything. I'm just going to squeeze my anus really, really tight and push through that's no good either. So both have to be happening. And the intersection of both is your attitude and your tongue. Jiva. It's your soul. It's jiva yoga. I think someone took that. Name. 
Does that make sense? You think so? Yeah. Investigate it. Seems like a good time for some chocolate. Anybody bring that chocolate with orange in it that we had? And stop thinking about that. I'm going through the heart suture. When's the chocolate? So let's take a 15-minute break. <laughs>